This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss uh, an ever-present but often ignored uh, issue, which is the question of uh, Puerto Rico's place within the larger American democracy. And we're very fortunate to have my friend and uh, fellow professor at the University of Texas, uh, Alberto Martinez, uh, here. Al is originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, He's a professor of the history of science, among other topics here at the university. And he's published a wide range of really interesting books. Uh, A recent book on Galileo and the Inquisition called Burned Alive, a book on the cult of Pythagoras, a book called Science Secrets, the Truth About Darwin's Finches, Einstein's Wife, and Other Myths. I love the title of that one. A book called Kinematics, The Lost Origins of Einstein's Relativity, and a book that Zachary and I have actually read part of, Negative Math, How Mathematical Rules Can Be Positively uh, Bent. We were reading this when Zachary was trying to convince his teachers that one plus one was not two, in Good. fact. Uh, <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Exactly. Al, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. Zachary, uh, what is the title of your uh, scene-setting poem for this episode? To Puerto Rico. To Puerto Rico. Well, let's hear it. Puerto Rico, I remember you when I was five years old in the old fort of San Juan and drinking Shirley Temples at the resort bar in the tropical humidity, and I remember the first time my dad had to explain what a territory was, and I remember never learning about you in history class, never hearing about your votes when the elections came and disappeared into the rest of November, except as some hypothetical democratic addendum on the edge of the electoral maps. And how is it that to us all you are farther than Hawaii in our minds, some forgotten cousin of the pineapple colony that became our 50th state, except you are still a pineapple colony in the minds of too many of us, slipping into the rage of hurricanes, losing power for months because you didn't have a senator, thousands dead because there was no one to call out for you with some piercing voice that was reason. But you were like when you are lost in the mountains and the forests keep changing under your feet, demanding debt payments and austerity, like you were spilt orange juice on an allowance from an animate napkin holder on the table that demanded you paid back your devalued bonds. Puerto Rico, I wonder how many of us can find you on a map, a piece of American insulation between Punta Cana and the BVI, bigger than Delaware. Puerto Rico, I get so frustrated sometimes thinking about taxation without representation, so worried when they don't mention you on the debate stages of the bright lights. But sometimes you give me hope when you vote clearly in referendums and find a way to keep the lights on. And maybe it sometimes makes you feel a little bit of glee to think of Harry Truman cowering under the bed. And maybe you're just a little bit lucky to be so far away from anyone's mind that you can fly through three governors and no one notices. Oh, Puerto Rico, in bondage to the bonds, I just can't understand why a language barrier and a little over a thousand miles of seawater is enough for you to still be some imperial oddity of American democracy, for you not to have a voice beyond the ignored SOS that occasionally washes ashore. There's a lot in that poem, Zachary. What, what is it about? My poem was really about how Puerto Rico has never really been a, a major part of the American conscience and how it really, to all of us, seems very remote, and we think of it as this completely different place, and we forget that everyone in Puerto Rico is an American citizen, and that it, it's American territory, and we, 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 we treat it as if it's completely different. And even though culturally it is, but we treat it as if we can just ignore it, but we can't. Mm-hmm. Al, uh, how do you think about this? I mean, Puerto Rico has this strange relationship to the United States, and, and you deal with this every day, right? 
Yeah, um, uh, some people call Puerto Rico the oldest colony in existence. Yes. I mean, we were uh, invaded or discovered by Spain in 1493, and um, subsequently the United States uh, took over, invaded in 1898. So that's around, uh, you know, more than 500 years of a colonial status. And even though there's a variety of euphemisms available to get rid of that reality, is it is real. Yes, yes. And and why has this prolonged? Why 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 has this status not been rectified in the way that other territories uh, like Texas became states mm -hmm. at some point? I think internally, part of the neglected reality, uh, even in Puerto Rico, it's somewhat invisible, is that there were enormous actions and efforts in the mid-20th century to repress the independence movement. So, um, uh, for example, by 1948, there is a so-called gag law in which you could not You could not talk about independence. You could not sing the Puerto Rican anthem. You could not wave a Puerto Rican flag. If you did, you'd be incarcerated for 10 years. Wow. So you take that kind of uh, political and police pressure, which went on. For example, the police kept uh, records on roughly 100,000 Puerto, Puerto Ricans over a 60-year period. Um, 1.8 million pages of documents. When you when you take that effect over two generations of more of, of censorship, people get used to living in a colony. You know, you just don't talk about certain things. You don't think about it. And in some sense, the status quo ceases to sound so bad because the, the independent independence movement just goes underground. So it gets normalized. Yeah, it gets normalized. You know, nowadays everybody's got their cell phone, their flat screen TV, and, uh, you know, a pack of beer so people can relax with the modern conveniences <laughs> regardless of the fact that we do live in a colony. And, and so what does that mean in practice? I mean, what what is it like growing up in Puerto Rico? How is it different from living in a place like Austin, Texas? Well, for example, from an early age, we know that we don't get to vote for uh, president or vice president or that we have no representation in Congress, no senators. Um, uh, so we also have a sense of... Um, a lack of authority as a nation or a location, meaning if Puerto Rico wanted to strike a business deal with Japan or Venezuela, mm -hmm. whether it's for cars or gasoline, it's just impossible. Right. Any such transactions have to be mediated through Congress, and the Puerto Rico government has no authority whatsoever to, say, approve a shipment of, of fruit from Central America without that first, uh, you know, perhaps traveling to uh, Florida first and then making its way to Puerto Rico. So, as I understand it, in some ways, Congress actually governs Puerto Rico rather than having a state government governing itself, right? Yeah, uh, certainly. And... Um, uh, Around 2015, there was a, an important Supreme case, Supreme Court case decided in which the Supreme Court uh, clarified that Puerto Rico certainly has no sovereignty. The, the sovereignty of Puerto Rico resides in Congress. This matters because to many Puerto Ricans, it was eye-opening. They had been sold the lie, especially by Puerto Ricans themselves, not by Americans. They have been sold the lie by since 1952 that Puerto Rico is a freely associated state, meaning that we're not a state, but we sort of are. We're free, but we're sort of not. And we chose to be associated by this constitutional compact in 1952. And uh, and they, they, they coined a, a phrase to identify the 
entity known as Puerto Rico Estado Libre Asociado, which literally means freely associated state, a, fra a phrase that does not exist anywhere hmm. in federal government records. It's a euphemism for a thinly disguised colony. The, the U.S. instead referred to Puerto Rico as a commonwealth, which is a, a nice way to talk about a territory because then it sounds as though there's a wealth we shared in common. <laughs> We're all getting along. Um, uh, but, but to get to my point, we... Um, uh, we we have many layers that disguise the Puerto Rican reality so that one has to actually overcome uh, uh, our blindness to, 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 to see th this unfortunate relationship. As a child growing up, one is not very aware of these things. Mm. As the years go by, one becomes more aware. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, how big a role do, do issues like race and, and uh, the language barrier in Puerto Rico, how do they play a role in the relationship between Puerto Rico and the mainland? Um. People are certainly uh, have concepts of race. It's somewhat different from the U.S., meaning that, uh, say, in schools and uh, jobs, it's not so clear what the racial groups are. And what I mean by that is there are many people in Puerto Rico that say might be considered black by someone who's visiting Puerto Rico, but who do not consider themselves black in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, likewise, when the U.S. Census was last done in 2010, it turned out we had, I don't know, say something like 76% of people who self-identified as white, which means more people self-identified as white in Puerto Rico than in the U.S., which which makes made Puerto Rico seem to be one of the whitest places in the United States. It's it's nonsense. Anybody who goes there knows that most people are brown or dark and and you know certainly not white. But these concepts are are different in regards to the U.S. As you asked, Zachary, th there certainly is an awareness that uh, Puerto Ricans are not gringos, that gringos are white or whiter, and that um, uh, there are there is an asymmetry of power, such that, for example, racism might manifest itself in a family in which uh, people might actually want their daughter to marry a, a whiter guy or a white guy than a black guy, because, again, uh, th there is a colonial history of slavery that uh, has had its long-term effects in, you know, in, in, in people trying to to um, uh, to be of one group that gets more inclusion rather than another that tends to get less inclusion. Do Puerto Ricans tend to think of themselves as Americans? Uh, yeah, but there's something general, which is uh, throughout Central and South America, there's this feeling that the United States kind of stole that term, that, you know, we were all America, Central America, Latin America, sure. and the U.S. just took it, and, and that we were all Americans. And uh, so, you know, when one says Los Americanos in Puerto Rico, one is consciously referring to North Americans. So, you know, North Americans kind of did win that fight by, uh, by their common usage. Do we identify as people of the United States? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, people are proud to be Puerto, uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, citizenship was granted in 1917, and it's, it's something we all appreciate. Imagine, you know, any of us can simply buy any airplane ticket in in any airport or, or online and fly to any state without asking anyone for permission, not even getting a visa, right. means anybody can move to the U.S. without even, you know, answering a single 
question on a line of paper. Nothing. Um, so, so that's an interesting power. At the same time, it came at an enormous expense, meaning one month after Puerto Rican citizenship was granted, uh, thousands of Puerto Rican men were shipped off to fight in World War I. Right, I mean, it's, it's yeah. a strange coincidence that we, <laughs> it's not just a gift. This is a, this is a trade of, you know, blood and sacrifice that is given with, you know, the, the U.S. decides, you know, one month after giving Puerto Rico this, uh, you know, this citizenship, they announced that they're sure. entering World War I and they instantly are sending why, thousands of Puerto Ricans. Why didn't, and I, I know having gone back and read some of the debates, there was, was discussion of Puerto Rico getting fuller representation in Congress after that moment. Why didn't that happen? Um, I don't know. I haven't personally analyzed that history in detail. I can tell you the similar situation nowadays, which is you consider the population we have. We have had nearly 4 million people just, say, 15 years ago in Puerto Rico. Now we're down to around 3.1, 3.2 million. But if we have three or four million people, that's more than many states. Yes, of course. It's more than South Dakota. It's more than Wyoming. It's more than, uh, I don't know. So, Delaware. Yeah. So so uh, we would have more seats in Congress. Yes. Uh, we would, it, similarly, if we were a state, it's it would have certain conveniences to Puerto Rico, such as we would get better benefits and Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security uh, Poverty, funds for poverty and welfare. But at the same time, that's not that good for the other states who are vying for those same funds. There's going to be less funds available because more of them are going to be allocated to Puerto Rico. Right. right. And and I, I know we wanted to talk about uh, Hurricane Maria. Yeah. And I know you, you were very personally involved in going down and helping helping the community. Uh, could, could you share with us some of your experiences and also how this issue of statehood affected the, in many ways, insufficient uh, U.S. federal government assistance given to Puerto Rico, especially in comparison to what was given to places like Houston. Yeah. Um, the federal government claims that the funding that they've allocated for Puerto Rico is greater than any other natural disaster or hurricane that they've uh, attended to in in U.S. history. However, th those funds have not actually made it to Puerto Rico. Something on the order of maybe $5 billion have been actually used, especially for the reconstruction of the power grid, which was already falling apart before the hurricane struck. If Puerto Rico had been a state, then I do think uh, some of the, uh, the structure would have been uh, more quickly agitated to uh, provide supplies and assistance to Puerto Rico. But much of the disaster that happened in Hurricane Maria is local, meaning countless... Uh, uh, shipping uh, containers and uh, supplies of food and water bottles were simply not distributed. And, uh, you know, there's local incompetence, there's corruption. People were making money by not distributing food. Mm. Literally, if you have a company that rents shipping containers and they charge by the day, and now you have somebody who has to give the permit for that shipping container to move, and there's a conflict of interest there, the longer they delay the actual delivery of the food, the more money the the all these places make, whether it's a shipping container, the uh, employees who are charged with distributing it, the warehouses where the shipping containers are held. So it, it, was, it was a disaster of unprecedented proportions. I mean, one cannot... Even going there, one has to travel a bit to get a sense of just how bad this is. We're talking about roughly 60,000 utility poles knocked down, uh, hundreds of thousands of houses 
partially destroyed or fully destroyed. Um, uh, it, to this day, it's over two years after the hurricane, we have more than 30,000 homes still without roofs. Wow. 30,000 homes. Wow. So the, the, the logistical problems are extraordinary. Uh, I do think that if Puerto Rico had been a state, yeah, the, the aid would have somehow made it made it there a little more efficiently. Why, why, why is there so much corruption in Puerto Rico? That's a stereotype, often a negative stereotype of Puerto Rico. Yeah, uh, good question. Um, it could be that the colonial government since the times of Spain was serving the interests of moneyed groups and that kind of practice continues throughout the American uh, phase. Um, more particularly, this is symptomatic of a development of capitalism which is international, meaning the banks are taking over. Um, uh, you know, it used to be that feudal lords and kings held the lands and you worked like a serf. Eventually, that structure is eliminated and we get these industrialists and uh, investors. And, and now we're in a situation where, you know, you'll be driving from one side of Puerto Rico to the other, say, an 83-mile stretch of highway. And, uh, you know, every, every 10 minutes or so, you pay a toll. Maybe every six minutes, you pay six tolls in 83 miles. And none of those tolls say that 49% of that money is going to Goldman Sachs. Hmm. But yet, like all the parking meters in Chicago, the money goes to Goldman Sachs. So, so there's a, a um, uh, it's almost like a vulture capitalism. There's something really unfortunate happening in Puerto Rico, whereby since Puerto Rico is not a state and doesn't have the same kinds of uh, protection against certain uh, exploitative practices, you have experimental forms of this corruption that sometimes seem pioneering and <laughs> unprecedented in <laughs> human history. <laughs> I mean, some of the things, I'll give you one example just because I have it written down. I wanted to share this one with you. Um, just so you can see the degree of conflict of interest. There is a prominent bank in Puerto Rico, Banco Santander. One of the uh, top guys in Santander was Carlos Garcia. After creating uh, investment products for uh, Banco Santander as head of securities, he becomes president of the Government Bank of Development. So he goes from the private sector that is pitching products to investment products to the government, start working for the government itself. Um, while he's working for the Puerto Rico government, he appoints six executives from Santander to the Government Bank of Development, which is a conflict of, of course. interest. Of course. At the same time, he gives, um, he gave government contracts to the Bank of uh -huh. Santander. I'm so surprised. And the Bank of Santander coincidentally became the number one issuer of Puerto Rico bonds. Puerto Rico issued $2.7 billion in bonds in connection with this. And once he leaves the government, what does he do? He goes back to Santander in 2011. And incredibly, once the government bonds fail to pay, because of course these bonds are worth trash, you know, you're not going to make the investment you've been promised. This is all a Ponzi scheme. This is a, a way to get investors to sacrifice their money, money that they'll never see again. When these bonds fail, the Congress appoints the Financial Oversight Management Board to control Puerto Rico, to literally end democracy. 
No longer does the duly elected Democratic governor of Puerto Rico have ultimate word. Instead, it's the Financial Oversight Board. And who's one of the seven members appointed in 2016? Carlos Garcia. It's unbelievable that something like this not only happens, but continues to this day. He's still on the board. There is no case. There is no accusation of corruption or double dipping or uh, it's these, these things are it, it boggles the mind how this happens it's, it's the just, fox guarding the hen house yeah, i mean well. the fox is guarding the hen house again and again and again wow so uh, you were saying before that you had mixed feelings about statehood though yeah why well um uh, unlike many people i don't think political formulas are solutions in themselves i think they all have positive and negative aspects and it depends on the individuals who happen to be involved trying to pull it off so yeah statehood could work just as it works i don't know for some some places like texas you know in texas we're doing relatively well um uh, uh many other jurisdictions in the u.s are doing relatively well it could work um, uh, for example, certainly it would work for poor people, poor people, aging people, retired people, people needing medical care would be enormously helped if Puerto Rico were a state. At the same time, um, a part of the problems of Puerto Rico are created by its the lack of its own uh, its own leadership, uh, its own uh, defense of its own business. For example, there's a bunch of local pharmacies. Can we defend them when Walgreens moves in? Or are we going to let them be destroyed? Right, right. If you got people making food, are we going to defend their business when Burger King moves in? And, and no, you're going to find more Walgreens and Walmarts in Puerto Rico per square mile than you will in any other part of the United States. Meaning uh, 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 there is no, there, there is something antithetical in, in Puerto Rico's connection to the U.S. whereby we become the third or fourth largest market of the U.S., meaning we're a hostage market. So, so the more we buy American products, which are good, we all like the American products, but the more we buy them, the more, the more we destroy our local industries. So, so in some, the alternative to statehood, for example, being independent, we would be able to do business more freely with other countries. We would, everything would go down in price because we'd be able to buy fruit and gasoline for directly from other countries rather than getting them shipped from Florida, even if they came from Japan. And likewise, we might have a bigger opportunity opportunity in actually creating and protecting our own local businesses than we do as it is uh, with a freely associated state or as a state whereby, um, you know, all these uh, franchises pour in from the U.S. So as I understand it, then you're arguing that either statehood or independence would be better and maybe there are pros and cons both ways, but not the status quo. I agree. I agree. I mean, the the status quo has done so much damage under both parties. The Puerto Rico, like many places, even, of course, the U.S. is split between two political parties. In Puerto Rico, these parties in some sense are fake, meaning that um, uh, neither of them really represents progress or uh, the betterment for advancement for, say, poor people or uneducated people. Instead, they serve the common interest. One party is pro-status quo, the other party is pro-statehood. There's good people in both parties, especially many wonderful public servants who are dedicated. But but there's also this weird team spirit, which is, you know, from childhood, you're branded with the party of your family. You know, you love a particular baseball team, you love a basketball team, and you're a member of a party, just like right. you're a member of your church. So it, it, this two-party system is irrational. It destroys Puerto Rico with partisan politics. And um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't like the status quo. I, I've seen too many bad things happen within it all my life, 
all my life has just been, you know, disaster upon disaster. So I do think a, a change sure. of formula would be much sure. better. Sure. So as you know, Al, we like to uh, close every show with some sort of positive ways we can use this historical background. You, you've given us really a, a rich understanding, a rich emotional and intellectual and historical understanding of the trajectory of at least the last few generations in Puerto Rico, going back much further also. Uh, what, what are some of the positive opportunities moving forward? If you were asked, or if young people listening are trying to think about how they can contribute to a more productive dialogue surrounding Puerto Rico, what would you suggest? Um, I think many people have already contributed to Puerto Rico in many ways. We have to dedicate a moment to thank the countless many people who say flew in from the United yes. States uh, to help Puerto Rico during Hurricane Maria. I'll give you an example. One day I was in Old San Juan shortly after the hurricane, and there were six trucks from Con Edison, which I think is either in New York or New Jersey, parked on the same street working. I mean, it was just astonishing to see that these vehicles had been transported and that I was seeing six in one street. So um, along those lines, what are other things that people can do nowadays? I think that keeping Puerto Rico in mind in discussions when we talk about politics yes. and governance and democracy and Congress is, is essential. As, um, uh, as Zachary mentioned, th th there's something about this invisibility. If there's 50 states, why is it that Puerto Rico gets less than one one hundredth <laughs> of the attention? So it's unfortunate. It's toxic. It's a wonderful, lovely place to visit if people would just buy an airplane trip and go there and discover, wow, this is part of the United States. People will welcome you there. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful, comfortable, welcoming place yes. for yes. tourists and for visitors. It would help uh, remind people that, um, uh, that, you know, we're good neighbors and, and, and we like being part of the family. And, and even though we're, we're an extended family, uh, we, we appreciate many uh, interactions and things we learn from one another. Do we do enough as universities and other institutions to reach out to young people in, in this community? Um, you mean uh, reach out to Puerto Ricans in particular? Yes. No, unfortunately we don't. I think uh, one of the downsides of diversity is we tend to think of diversity as this rainbow spectrum in which we'll do something named that diversity and we hope that net captures everyone. The particular example of Puerto Rican students is since Puerto Rican students come from a colony, even if we don't want to call it a colony, it's, it is what it is. Um, um, when Because they come from a colony, we don't register them as foreign students. Right. So they don't even exist right. as a right. group that can be identified from, uh, for the for for the audience um i mean for the university um uh so so yeah better efforts to identify to recognize their experience as culturally different and to incorporate the perspectives they can bring and the concerns the worries the opportunities that are extended to many students it would be wonderful but we're just not there and yet. it would seem that yeah. being more conscious of the history you've laid out so well would allow us as fellow students as faculty as fellow citizens mm -hmm. to be more attentive to concerns and needs and anxieties yeah. that emerge for people who are who are coming to a different part of the united states from puerto rico right absolutely yeah. Do you, do you see an uh, in, in opportunity, uh, any opportunities in the upcoming future for this issue to really 
take center stage again and for us to talk about uh, Puerto Rico's relationship with the United States? I think so. Part of what's happening that's really wonderful now is not just telecommunications and internet, but the the uh, uh, propagation of history. It's unbelievable the degree to which many of us are becoming aware of things that we just did not know. I'll give you an example, uh, ju just so that you can envision how, as you know, as an American citizen, you might be surprised, just as I was a few years ago. Yeah, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and you know, I went to public schools in Puerto Rico, and I didn't know. And nobody ever told me while I lived in Puerto Rico that in 1950 there had been an attempt at a revolution in Puerto Rico. I just did not know that. I knew that in 1952 we had created this commonwealth and yada, 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 and that we had a constitution. I knew that. But, you know, how does it happen that um, we're blind to some of our history and we're blind to some of these conflicts? So, that, for example, if we think of Puerto Ricans as people who don't pay federal taxes, which they don't, then we think, wow, it's just, it's just a bunch of freeloaders. They should pay federal taxes. And we don't realize, wait a minute, part of the reason they don't pay federal taxes is because they're losing their money in countless many other ways. So much money that, you know, uh, average wage there is $18,000. Um, uh, they get less money in Medicare. They, um, uh, you know, you have a really... You don't get Social Security, right? You, you do get Social oh, Security, but 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 not, in, not quite in the same way. But what I'm getting at is existence in Puerto Rico is more difficult and impoverished than in the U.S. So, but if we simply hear one aspect, which is uh, Puerto Ricans don't pay federal taxes, it creates an image about Puerto Rico. Now, now I'll propose a different image. 1950, uh, Puerto Ricans are so upset about their colonial status and they're so worried that the United Nations will not pay attention to Puerto Rico and, and help Puerto Rico decolonize that they, many of them decide, you know, we have to stage a rebellion. And, uh, you know, they, they, they carry out this effort to assassinate the governor of Puerto Rico. They fail. They try to assassinate uh, President Truman. Yes. They fail. And, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of men are shot and thousands are yes. incarcerated yes. and and this revolution is suppressed and it happens in many towns and bombing in puerto rican towns by american bomber planes is reported i mean it's just astonishing when one looks at the history of you know the struggle to be free the struggle to have democracy if one actually looks at that story um uh one the perspective starts to change in which you realize boy these people have been oppressed They've at some points been so desperate that they've been willing to engage in suicidal missions, meaning they had no chance of killing President Truman. They had no chance. These people went there to die. And, and you know, it, the more you get close to it, the more you start to understand there, you know, th there's some crisis going on here. Why did some of these guys go up there to try to assassinate Truman? Well, because there had been a series of police murders in their hometowns, and eventually these people are so desperate that... So, so there is a human struggle that was not caused by anyone who's in government in the United States right now, and, 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 and that at the same time has a legacy yes. of, of, of inequity and difference that, that if one 
invest the time to learn about it, inevitably one starts sympathizing more with these neighbors that we call Puerto Ricans. Yes, yes, I think that's a wonderful who, yeah, point. People who worked, who 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 fought in wars, people who who you know who have who have been in service to the U.S. in many different absolutely, ways. Absolutely, absolutely, been been major contributors to every war of the 20th century, 21st mm -hmm. century, uh, dying uh, dying patriotically for the United States. Ab absolutely right, Zachary. Do you think this is something that could be worked into the education of young people? In our society, yeah, I think that uh, e even today there there's a greater emphasis on looking at American foreign policy, particularly in the late 19th century and early 20th century. We're, we're discussing it more in terms of imperialism and less in terms of uh, of, of sort of a democratic American expansion. And I, and I think that Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico plays a large role in this. I do think we need to make sure that Puerto Rico does not uh, get ignored because I, I think that uh, if many Americans were actually aware of the issues going on in Puerto Rico, this wouldn't be something where the status quo is just continued for right. for decades. Right. And we're fortunate to have uh, prominent figures like uh, like Al Martinez and like Lin-Manuel Miranda and others in our society today who are reminding us. And, and I think, as Al said so well, that's a sign of progress. That's something actually to be yeah. optimistic about. Do yeah. you agree, Al? Yeah, certainly. Many people have made it and they gained visibility in a national scale um, in terms of how do we incorporate Puerto Rico more into conversations about the future of the US I think another point I'd recommend is that Puerto Rico is an experiment. There are things that happen in Puerto Rico that later are carried out in other jurisdictions in the US and uh, when we look at the unfortunate process whereby long-delayed democracy reached Puerto Rico and was finally replaced by this Financial Oversight Management Board, which means the bankers control the island. You see that happen in Puerto Rico. Bear in mind, it is coming to the United States. This has happened in Greece and Portugal and the European Union and numerous other places. These experiments whereby we managed to push away the control of the people and hire some technocrats who were mostly bank bankers and other finance experts who were simply uh, issuing and lending digital currencies. Um, uh, there is something really threatening to democracy that is happening in Puerto Rico. It's alarming. It's offensive. The person who runs the Financial Oversight Board in Puerto Rico makes far more money than the governor and far more money than the U.S. president. This is something really unusual. This is what's happening in, in, in Puerto Rico. You know, it is something that has to be uh, kept in mind because... Otherwise, it's going to happen here, too. And, and I think, Al, this captures perfectly one of our central themes on this podcast week after week, which is that uh, the evolution of American democracy does not just occur in the usual places where we look at it. Yeah, and it's fact, going away. <laughs> and democracy is a beautiful word, but whatever it originally meant to the ancient Romans in Puerto Rico, it's really astonishing to see. Uh, first, you have... Uh, this conflict between these two political parties where, you know, like airplane food in the olden days, yes. chicken or lasagna. And you're like, well, I don't know that there's any big difference between right. the two. Right. Um, you've, you had a choice and eventually you get this system whereby the um, uh, uh, non-elected 
highly paid individuals appointed at extraordinary conflicts of interest sure. are making the biggest you, decisions. You made this point yeah. so well, and I think it's not unique to Puerto Rico, as you say, and democracy is a dynamic process, and there are evolving threats and evolving opportunities, and one of the great opportunities is for us to expose this. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Al, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Zachary, and thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Jeremy. It's You're been welcome. great. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.